And so we identi identified Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, and Maine, those six as states where we had a majority of support, you know, some, some, you know, but with a margin for legalizing medical marijuana, where they were small enough that we could afford to do it. Right. Um, and then I, then the challenge was for me to raise the money and, in the most, the biggest fundraising coup of my life, in the space of 24 hours, I persuaded George Soros, Peter Lewis, and John Sperling to commit between eight and nine million dollars over the next 18 months um, to basically get this through, as well as a few initiatives in other areas. And then, come 1998, you know, we basically, well, between 98 and 2000, we won all six. You know, there were some quirks along the way, you know, you know, in Maine, it snowed a lot. So we didn't get all the signatures. We had to put it off to 99. In Nevada, the Constitution required that you win it twice in a row. In Colorado, we made it onto the ballot. Then the Secretary of State of Colorado, you know, invalidated us. So people went to the ballot. They voted on it. We had exit polls showing we won, but the vote didn't count. Welcome to this episode of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features Dr. Ethan Nadelman, founder of the Linda Smith Center and Drug Policy Alliance, who's been described by Rolling Stone as the point man for drug policy reform efforts and the real drug czar. Ethan has been at the center of drug policy reform for over 30 years. Ethan is the first repeat guest on the show, as last time this interview was scheduled, we both had the conflict in the Middle East on our minds and decided to start with that discussion. Today, we dig into Ethan's background and career. He and I discuss his educational journey to receiving bachelor's, master's, and a PhD from Harvard, what led him to move from Middle East politics to drug policy early on, how he had a major hand in orchestrating vast changes in drug policy and surrounding issues during his career, his stint as a podcaster, and some new things that he's gotten into. Here is Ethan Nadelman on People Are the Answer. Ethan, thanks so much for joining me again on People Are the Answer. Hey, Jeff, it's good to be back on. And talking about yeah. drugs. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And I, I think you're actually the first person that's been a uh, multiple appearance as, as a guest. So congrats. Uh, well, I'm honored. <laughs> Thank you very much. And just so that the listeners are aware, you know, last time Ethan and I were scheduled to do this interview, it was, you know, right after October 7th and everything that happened in Israel, which, you know, affected both of us and our communities tremendously. And we ended up, you know, having a conversation about that. Um, certainly on the forefront of our minds still, but today, you know, we're going to go into uh, Ethan's background and do more of my usual figuring out how he became an innovator in social impact. Sounds good, Jeff. And I'll tell you, I mean, I think the interview we did, you know, back uh, two months ago, which focused so much on what was going on in, with Israel and Gaza, I think a lot of it still, you know, even though it was, it was helpful for me, it was cathartic. Um, and I think what I said there, I think I'd probably still stand by a large, the large part of it. I think, uh, you know, the analysis was remains accurate. So, you know, hopefully things will work out. Some silver linings will emerge. Yeah, things have evolved since then, but it's still applicable. It, it, it uh, what you said, I think, sort of had staying power. So, anyway, let's turn to drugs, and uh, yeah, you know, which has really been most of my life's work. So, remind our listeners um, your full name and where you're based. Yeah, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and I'm born and have lived for the last 30 years in New York City. 
And you are the founder of Drug Policy Alliance as well, right? That's right. I'm the founder of Drug Policy Alliance, which was, you know, historically the merger of two organizations. One was the Drug Policy Foundation, created by Arnold Z, Arnold Treback and Kevin Zeese back in the late 80s, with which I was very involved. And the other one was the Lindesmith Center, uh, named after the first prominent scholar to challenge conventional thinking about drug policy and drug prohibition, Alfred Lindesmith. And it was the merger of those two organizations in 2000 that created the Drug Policy Alliance. And, you know, you mentioned growing up in New York City. What was that like um, as a place to grow up? Well, actually, I was born in the city, lived here for my first couple of years, but then grew up in the suburbs. So I had a very suburban existence and, uh, you know, pretty chill growing up, born in 57. So growing up in the 60s, you know, I became a teenager at the beginning of the 70s. Uh, and, uh, and I can say from the drug perspective, you know, not particularly, you know, I was getting drunk with my friends when I was a teenager, but it wasn't really till I was 17 that I tried marijuana and 18 till I really started consuming it when I went to college. And we'll definitely dig back into that. But generally in life, what would you say motivates you? I know we talked about that a little bit in our last episode. Well, you know, I think it's, I mean, I grew up, my, my dad was a rabbi and my uncle was a professor. Uh, and I think that that notion of, so being driven by making money was not something that was really in our family. Um, in fact, I think when my dad, you know, was a rabbi with a congregation, he admired the people who made a shitload of money, you know, that seemed to make it worth it. But the people who, you know, just did it so they could show off their Cadillac or their nicer house or get a position on the board of the synagogue, he didn't really have much respect for that. And so for me, it was generally about the life of the mind. And I think on some other level about having a sense of purpose in life, that one was here to try to make the world a better place, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, the Jewish expression, tikkun olam. Um, or something along those lines, some sense of leading a purpose-driven life. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly relate on that front. And, you know, what do you, th you talked about your dad and your uncle, you know, was it them? Was it something else that drove you to want to just generally give back? Uh you know, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to say, and I didn't really think about it as giving back. Um, you know, it, it it was the sense about wanting. There was there was. I, 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 it's funny. I remember um, a mushroom experience when I was about um, twenty five, and and I started just you know the words conflict, conflict kept coming up, conflict. I was really in a point in my life when I was twenty five, and you know one of the questions you know I was thinking, am I going to continue my focus on Middle East politics, or am I going to shift to something new? Am I going to stay with the girlfriend that I'd been with for six or seven years, or am I going to move on? And um, am I going to lead a life where I might just become an academic in a small college and be committed to teaching, which was a form of giving, um, of doing of doing good in the world, or was I going to try to play a more active role in the world? And all of these things were, you know, fairly unresolved at the age of 25. And I think that as um, I approached 30 and hit my early 30s, they all came into much sharper resolution. Yeah, that that makes sense. And, um, you know, it's pretty incredible to see you have a bachelor's, a master's, your JD and PhD all from Harvard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of throw in the master's when you get the uh, PhD, but yep. Okay. Well, <laughs> two for one deal there. Um, you know, obviously related to our last topic of conversation, Harvard has been in, in the media of late. And I think we'd be remiss to not at least briefly get your thoughts on that and how you feel as an alum. Oh, 
God, Jeff, that's, um, you know, I haven't fully processed it in that way. I do think, you know, when Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard and the other two presidents from MIT and Penn, you know, obviously they seriously flubbed, um, you know, that congressional hearing. And the fact that they did it in front of one of the most despicable politicians in Congress, uh, Stefanik, the New York Congresswoman who had been a moderate upstate you know, New York Republican and then become a over-the-top Trumpist and, you know, you know, election denial, just horrible, horrible, horrible. And she set up a trap for them, which they fell into, uh, you know, and that's hard to avoid because, you know, the person who's got the gavel has the power there. I will say that on the one hand, I think they were correctly, by and large, articulating the need to defend freedom of speech on campuses. I think that was I think that was important. And I, I encourage your listeners, there's an organization called FIRE, F-I-R-E, yep. I mean, which, like the ACLU, has been defending uh, speech while the ACLU has begun to drop the ball on a number of cases where progressive allies are um, not supportive, uh, although they still do it. Uh, but FIRE's really been adamant about that. And they sometimes are yeah, mischaracterized. Yeah, they're sometimes mischaracterized as being leaning right. But I think they're really just objectively speaking about pr- protecting First Amendment and especially on campuses. So I encourage your 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 listeners to look at that. But I'd say that I think the three presidents did make a valiant effort to try to defend the importance of free speech and to try to explain that people can say absolutely terrible, atrocious things. But if it doesn't edge over into being some type of conduct um, that that needs to be protected. I think the two great failings of the presidents, one was the kind of relatively passionless way in which they spoke about what had happened on October 7th and what was happening in terms of this feeling of trauma that many Jewish students were feeling. I mean, you know, we're, we're you know, and, and I think the second thing was that it was the hypocrisy because obviously all of these institutions, and I know in the case of Harvard, you know, there were professors and students and others who had said things that were either foolish or stupid or insensitive involving other ethnic and racial minorities in the past. And there was a real coming down on them as if the freedom of speech didn't make that much difference. So that element of hypocrisy was um was very powerful. At this point, uh, you know, the Penn president, McGill, resigned. I don't know that it's necessary that Claudine Gay also, I mean, she's been making a valiant effort to try to step up and do the right thing now. I think it's good that you have, you know, I think the first uh, uh, black uh, president, black female president of Harvard, um, who's been highly now sensitized these issues and is going to take responsibility and hopefully make it part of her legacy to address these things. I hope that part of the um, silver lining on all of this will be that there will be both a robust defense of free speech on campuses that will be not hypocritically um, observed and enforced. And if that's the case, I think we'll land up moving forward. If conversely, you know, they start to be intimidated when you see Congress pass a resolution calling for these presidents to resign. You know, no, I, I don't think that's appropriate. It's a kind of McCarthyist like tactic. Uh, you know, even though I, I, I was upset with the way that Claudine Gay handled it, um, I don't like seeing this kind of McCarthyism coming out of it, especially the people who are driving it, you know, the hypocrites that they are in so many regards. Yeah. No, I appreciate your nuanced perspective and the thought that you've put into it because. So much of our society is just they just pick a side and they yell at each other. So 
No, exactly. And, and that's also what's, what's so sad is that, you know, to see students, I mean, obviously Muslim students have dealt with all the various forms of discrimination over time and had to deal with that. And, you know, now there's obviously the momentum is so much on associating the cause of the Palestinians um, with the broader social justice movement in America. I mean, it's been very difficult and painful for me because I have so many people close to me ranging from the far right on the Israeli spectrum to the far left on the Palestinian one and just essentially agreeing not to talk and not looking too much at social media because I really don't want to see what what some of these people I respect and sometimes love are saying, oftentimes out of ignorance or out of anger. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you entertaining that aside, but to dig back in your background, um, you know, I saw that you also had uh, a master's in international relations from the London School of Economics. That's right. That's right. I should say I started college at McGill University in Montreal in 1975, and then I transferred to Harvard as an undergrad. Um, and then I took a year in London um, uh, before going back to Harvard for my graduate work. So it was, uh, you know, I was basically in the Anglophone parts of the world. It was fascinating to be in Montreal in 1976, when the, the Quebecois Nationalist Party, the Party Quebecois, first won election, and things were very charged. It was also interesting on the Jewish piece because the Party Quebecois and some of their supporters had some tradition of anti-Semitism, and, and, and not just tradition, current manifestations of it, uh, both a combination of the old kind of, you know, ca- old traditional Catholic anti-Semitism to g- combined with a kind of modern progressive anti- leftist anti-Semitism. So there was that moment. Uh, but yeah, I basically, I mean, what can I tell you? I liked school, you know, and I was pretty good at it. I wasn't obsessive about it. I was a very good writer. So I managed to keep, uh, you know, getting into good schools as well. Uh, and I feel, you know, very, very, very lucky about that. I should also say it was probably a reflection of the fact that I was not taking my academic career very seriously, that I decided to start studying drug policy back in 1983, when it was regarded as just a quirky, offbeat issue, not in public opinion, no serious scholarship, certainly in the field of political science about it. You know, the sociology, anthropology had some of that, but in political science, there was virtually nothing. So it was because I think I wasn't taking my career very seriously that I decided to go, you know, what the hell? Let's give this a shot. Yeah. So tell me about that time. You know, you said you started learning about drug policy in 1983. You know, it looks like you were working at other subjects through 1994. So tell me about that crossover time. Well, basically what happened, I mean, after after deciding to leave behind Middle East studies and U.S. foreign policy, which had been my focus in my undergrad and first years of graduate school, um, you know, the drug thing was just a quirky one. I remember trying to think, what do I want to write a dissertation about? And, uh, you know, a buddy of mine said, well, Ethan, you're always trying to get everybody in the graduate program high. You obviously like the deviant side of things. Why don't you do something about like that? And I went to speak to a few professors, one in the uh, graduate school, Stanley Hoffman, one in the law school, Phil Hyman, one in the Kennedy school, Mark Moore. And they all said, yeah, do it. But then what happened was Phil Hyman said, why don't you focus especially not just on drugs, because I've been thinking about doing a dissertation on the evolution of U.S. international drug control policy. He said, why don't you focus on the internationalization of U.S. criminal law enforcement more broadly? Right. And I said, "Okay." Um, yeah, because a huge part of that was about drugs. But the result of that was that I landed up focusing on the intersection of criminal justice and foreign policy or the intersection of international relations and criminology. And it turned out that there was almost nobody working at that intersection. 
the basic question of how do cops and prosecutors uh, deal with crime when it becomes internationalized? How do diplomats deal with that when it becomes internationalized? How do, how do legal systems, criminal justice systems interact? How do agents operate and get things done? And I became fascinated by that. And one result was that I landed up going out to D.C., getting myself a security clearance, uh, writing a classified report for the State Department's International Narcotics Office on drug-related money laundering. Um, I went around and interviewed drug enforcement DEA agents in 19 different countries throughout Latin America and Europe and the U.S., and as well as many, many other foreign law enforcement agents and FBI and CIA and customs and all that sort of thing. And I landed up writing a dissertation and a book called Cops Across Borders on the Internationalization of U.S. Criminal Law Enforcement. And then publishing tons of articles and and then a second book with a professor at Brown University, Peter Andreas, called Police in the Globe. So that was a kind of academic focus of mine that was about my trying to get tenure at the university and publishing in the academic world. But I never had any real passion about it. And even though I knew the drug war and basically a prohibitionist approach was fundamentally flawed almost from the get go, I leaned over backwards to give the DEA agents and the others, you know, uh, the benefit of the doubt in terms of what they were doing. You know, even the book I wrote was kind of like, how do agents do this? And I said almost nothing about the overwhelming failure of the international drug thing. It was really looking at the nature of the process. And part of that was also these DEA guys had spoken to me openly and trusted me. And I didn't feel like I wanted to burn them in in that regard. You know, in fact, it led to some phony moments when I then was started speaking out and against the drug war in favor of some measure of drug legalization. I find myself sometimes debating or interacting with the people I've been interviewing just a few years before, but we were able to keep it in a kind of friendly, uh, good way, generally speaking. Got it. So, I mean, it seems like you really took a deep dive there and, you know, you mentioned not really experiencing drugs, I think till college, you know, was your experience, personal experience with drugs, what got you interested in learning about them and learning about the policies and the criminalization, et cetera? I think it definitely played a role. I mean, you know, I was 18, started smoking weed up in Montreal. Actually, it was mostly hash. You know, for some reason in Montreal, they were getting hash from Europe rather than weed from the U.S. Um, and liking it a lot and wondering why are people getting busted for this? I, I had friends who would get stopped at the border, this and that. And alcohol, I liked alcohol too, but it was so obviously more problematic and dangerous. So that kind of clicked for me. And then reading John Stuart Mill's classic treatise uh, called On Liberty, and where he draws a fundamental distinction between acts that are fundamentally self-regarding and those that are fundamentally other-regarding. And things like one's expression of one's sexuality, what one puts into one body, whether it's food or drugs or what have you, that these things are fundamentally self-regarding. And as Mill argued back in the middle of the 19th century, this is an area where government should not be employing its criminal prohibitions. They may cajole, they may incentivize people to act in their own better, higher interests, but they should not be forcing them, as opposed to other regarding behavior yep. where people are causing immediate harms. So I, I, I ended up writing a 50-page paper on John Stuart Mill's On Liberty as a sophomore. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, that that kind of uh, consolidated in a way the kind of uh, ethical philosophical basis of what I was already thinking about drugs and drug policy. And this was back in 1977. And then I just kind of remained interest, I, I guess, always intrigued by the the deviant side of things. You know, I'll tell you, Jeff, there was a moment I remember it was uh, it must have been in 1982 or so. 
And I was in a law school class taught by Phil Hyman, uh, my, who became my dissertation advisor, who had been the head of the criminal division in the Justice Department under Carter, and then the number two person in the Justice Department under Clinton for a while. I mean, under, under uh, Clinton. And, and I remember at one point just saying, God, it feels like there's no more issues that are just like black and white. And people kind of laugh because I'd accidentally made a pun about civil rights and blacks and whites and how that issue is becoming more complex. Um, uh, you know, it was no longer just fighting for civil rights as Martin Luther King did, but it was now about affirmative action and much more. Um, you know, there was the issue around gay rights, um, but, you know, and I believed in it, but I'm not personally gay. So it didn't quite resonate in the same way. And the drug thing had a hook. I mean, I mostly used marijuana and occasional psychedelics and tried a few other things, but there was a little bit of a connection. I knew what it meant to be afraid of being stopped by the cops or of, in fact, being stopped by the cops when there was marijuana in the car. I knew what it was yeah. to live with that kind of fear, even as a white man who was not going to be as vulnerable as, uh, you know, you know, young black and brown men were going to be. So, yeah. Yeah, in that sense, I connected. Yeah, and I, I can relate. You know, when I first got into the cannabis industry and then into drug policy, it was me trying cannabis and realizing that it wasn't, you know, the demon it was painted to be where I grew up in South Carolina. Um, and just the sort of pain that it caused for me around uh, people were sitting in jail for this plant. And, you know, I think we, we talked a little bit last time about how just – being Jews is part, kind of part of that. Like, you know, we come from generations that have been persecuted. And I think, you know, we have an opportunity here to sort of help some of the people that are being persecuted here, utilizing drug policy as a tool for that. Um, and, you know, I personally felt the need to act and it seems you felt similarly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I think we talked about this a bit on the previous episode, but it was I, I, I don't can't imagine that I and probably a lot of the other kind of pioneers of drug policy reform who are also Jewish. Um, I think it was some sense of our Jewish identity, our Jewish consciousness, and some sense also of the Holocaust history of persecution. You know, there was that a kind of another semi-classic book by Thomas Sass, the famous anti-psychiatry uh, psychiatrist, libertarian-minded. Uh, he was most famous for a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, but he wrote another book called Ceremonial Chemistry, the subtitle of which was The Ritual, per Ritual Persecution, I think, of Jews, witches, homosexuals, something like that. And he pointed out, you know, how every society essentially needs its boogeyman and that there are some populations that are particularly vulnerable to being identified as the boogeyman. I mean, the Jews have played that role you know, through 2000 years of Christian, uh, the Western world and to some lesser extent in the Muslim world, but also very real there as well. Um, you know, and then of course, witches, you know, women who were odd or slightly ill or off kilter or, or you know, deviant in some respect, um, immigrants sometimes play in that role. Um, you know, people of, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, whose skin color was darker, or otherwise different. So I think I was very much part of that, of that consciousness. And to me, in a way, the, the persecution and prosecution of people based upon what we put in our bodies, right? Marijuana, you know, other drugs, cocaine, heroin, psychedelics, whatever. It, it struck me as on some core level, going to a similar principle as the persecution of Jews and of homosexuals and of other you know, minority groups. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it, it was, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's where that sense was. And I wasn't as much drawn to play a role in the Jewish world. And anti-Semitism was not much of an issue when I was growing up. I, you know, occasional exposure to it, but pretty de minimis, right? And, and I'd already decided against getting involved um, with the Middle East uh, for various reasons. So, so that really was. Um, uh, yeah. It, and I'll tell you, there's another piece to this, Jeffrey, also, which is that the way I began to think about this, and I used to give some speeches on this occasion, was my dad was ordained as a conservative rabbi. You know, the, the three mainstreams of Judaism are Orthodox, conservative and reform. Um, but then there's a fourth branch called Reconstructionist Judaism, which emerged around the 1930s, founded by an Orthodox rabbi named Mordechai Kaplan. My dad was a protege of his. And my dad, you know, when I was growing up, was a rabbi at a conservative synagogue, but he was emerging and ultimately became the leader of the Reconstructionist movement. And and. Reconstruction movement basically saw Judaism less as a religion, more as an evolving civilization or people. It was the first to say that women need to be treated entirely equal, whether it comes to bar and bat mitzvah or, or rabbis being ordained. It was the one that rejected the notion of Jews as the chosen people, changed the blessing over the Torah from Asher Baharbanu Mikol Hamim, who chose us from among all the nations, to Asher Karbanu Lavodato, who gathered us to do his work. So there were a number of core ideas um, that in that, that ultimately shaped reform and conservative Judaism in a very big way. And I know for my dad, part of the tension always was, was he invested in building Reconstructionist Judaism as a fourth movement alongside reform, conservative, orthodox? Or was it more of a movement of ideas where the core Reconstructionist ideas would infuse reform and conservative Judaism and, and, and where rabbis might, you know, you know, and, and, and I, th I think he, it was ironic because in a way, I think he leaned more in favor of the idea thing, but he landed up becoming the head of the organization devoted to building the movement. And, you know, similarly with drug policy reform, you know, I spent a huge part of my career sort of building out or trying to create drug policy reform as it as a holistic, integrated drug policy reform movement that leaked things around public health policy, criminal justice policy, racial justice policy, issues around personal freedom, libertarian things, social welfare elements, um, you know, civil liberties, uh, you name it. Right. And that drug policy reform was something that could bring all of this together, in fact, not just domestically, but globally. Right. Yet at the same time, I knew that what that trying to build together a movement which included both recreational marijuana users or psychedelic users, together with people struggling with heroin and cocaine addiction and being demonized and criminalized, that was going to be tricky. You know, or or what brings together the coca growers of Bolivia and Peru together with the people injecting drugs, you know, uh, dangerously in other parts of the world. And so, you know, I, I, I knew that part of what we needed to do was to educate the movements in public health and criminal justice and racial justice and civil liberties and foreign policy, et cetera, about drug policy. So they should be infused those things. But I always maintained the aspirations of trying to build this into a holistic movement, even though knowing that the odds were strongly against it. And as we're seeing to some extent with marijuana legalization, you know, the more marijuana gets legalized, the more it's less of a political movement, the more it's about, you know, the markets and the business and all that. And the more it feels disassociated um, from the criminalization of other drugs. So, yeah, no, that's that's a very good point and something I've experienced as, you know, in my position on the board of the Marijuana Policy Project is just the evolution of, you know, when I first got involved, it was a lot of people, you know, libertarian leaning types. 
um, of activists and philanthropists that were working to change the laws. And as an industry developed, a lot of those philanthropists left thinking the industry will take care of this. Meanwhile, because of a lot of the barriers still in place, the industry was struggling to even operate um, and to make it for the most part. And that's resulted in it being very hard for the organizations involved in the movement to continue to get the funds that they need. People don't realize how much work there still is to do despite how far we've come. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, Jeremy, also just thinking historically, you know, George Soros, you know, who, uh, you know, invited me to lunch back in 1992 and we hit it off. And the result of that was a partnership between him and him and uh, him and me that, you know, amounted to hundreds of millions of dollars um, over the following 25 you know, 30 years or whatever it was. And um, so he was far and away the biggest funder glo globally of drug policy reform. But the individual actually was the biggest funder um, of of marijuana reform was actually Peter Lewis. I mean, I think he was probably doing more in the U.S. on marijuana reform than, you know, not as much as George was doing overall, but more than George was doing on marijuana reform. And so I always felt um, in my heart that it was that there was no way we we're going to end up legalizing marijuana unless Peter Lewis was willing to be, be firmly part of the partnership. And the most, the, the trickiest parts of my work in the late 90s, early 2000s was keeping together the partnership between Soros and Peter Lewis and another guy, a guy named John Sterling, who started the University of Phoenix. Um, and, but so Peter ultimately, very early on, you know, he, he, always, he always seemed to have a hard time with me. And and um, not always. I mean, you know, but but I think he would see me as too independent or too much identify with George Soros. Um, but he also would say, Ethan, you're you're focusing on the whole drug war. I'm focused on marijuana. And so when he kind of embraced Rob Campia early on, who was a fairly junior figure, but embraced him in, a, I think, the early 2000s, he actually met Rob. The two of them met at a Drug Policy Alliance conference. Um, and for reference, Rob Campia is the founder of the Marijuana Policy Project. Rob, Rob Campia with Chuck Thomas founded the Marijuana Policy Project in the mid to late 90s. Um, there was already an organization, Normal. Normal was much more the kind of, you know, the presence, the, the, the voice of the consumer. Marijuana policy was really about trying to do with marijuana, what DPA, Drug Policy Alliance, was also doing with marijuana, but also other drugs as well. But the argument I would make to Peter was that, Peter, you need in this movement two types of organizations. You need one like Marijuana Policy Project, which is singularly focused on rolling back marijuana prohibition, you know, through medical, measure, medical marijuana measures, decrim, et cetera, and ultimately legal regulation. But you also need an organization that is firmly committed to that objective, devoting substantial resources to it, but also is working on ending the broader war on drugs, right? And that you need both of these entities in there. And I would say, yes, you get a benefit of singular focus. But on the other hand, I'd say, you know, when we're going into New York or New Jersey or some other state, we're able to build on the relationships we built around other issues. When it came time to bring in, for example, you know, initially so many uh, black Americans, uh, black uh, legislators and others were opposed to legalizing marijuana, but we would be working on getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences. We would be getting working on alternatives to incarceration. We would be talking about trying to needle exchange to try to reduce HIV. So we would be building coalitions on other drug issues and then coming back to them and back to Black, Latino, other allies and say, stand with us on marijuana reform, right? So that framing it, my honorary board included people like 
Walter Cronkite, you know, the most famous American in media in the middle of the 20th century, right? It included George Shultz, the former Republican secretary of like almost everything. It included Frank Carlucci, the former, I think, deputy head of the CIA and the head of the Pentagon or vice versa, right? It included the former head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Bob Schuster. It included the most prominent black figure in drug treatment, uh, Dr. Benny Prim. It included, um, you know, Richard Branson and it included Vaclav Havel, the famous, you know, from uh, you know, Czechoslovakia, the, the, the anti-Soviet uh, dissident, right? So, but none of these people, including Nicholas Katzenbach, who had been a former attorney general and deputy secretary of state under Kennedy and Johnson, none of these people would have signed on and joined it with an organization that was just about legalizing marijuana, right? None or almost none of them. But, and some of them did not even fully agree with legalizing marijuana. But the fact was they signed on to be identified with Drug Policy Alliance because they supported the broad thrust of what it was we were working towards. And that helped to legitimize our cause in a very, very substantial way. And so you how, know, now how did you get those kind of names on board? Oh, it it always varied. Um, in the case of George Schultz, um, I had published an article in Science Magazine in the fall of 1989, and I found out that Milton Friedman had given Schultz, they were down the hall from one another at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, he'd given it to him. And then I heard in a roundabout way that Schultz had actually been speaking to an alumni group at Stanford and happened to mention my article and encourage people to read it. And so I was able to play a role in his becoming much more uh, public on, on this issue. In the case of Walter Cronkite, um, after he, you know, in the mid around 1994, he wanted to do a special about the drug war. So I just reached out to him um, uh, afterwards to see if he was interested. And then we landed up meeting through another board of member of mine, Matilde Krim, who had founded the American Foundation of AIDS Research, AMFAR. I got Paul Volcker on my um, uh, honorary board, the former head of the Federal Reserve, you know, a kind of, you know, great figure in American, uh, uh, you know, economic policy. The way that happened was we were doing a United, a sign-on letter, a public letter I had drafted to the Secretary Gen General Kofi Annan of the United Nations in 1998 when they were having a special General Assembly special session on drugs. And I'd done a sign-on thing and we sent it to all sorts of people, including people on Soros's mailing list. And Paul Volcker responded positively. He said, I'll sign. So I went to Sam and he, and I said, why did you do this? And he said, well, I mean, first of all, I think these Rockefeller drug laws, these draconian drug laws in New York are ridiculous. He goes, but I'll tell you something else. My wife um, is a diabetic. And when we're traveling, do you know what a hassle it is for her to simply get syringes in many pharmacies and states? So he got that needle issue just like that. Frank Carlucci, the former Republican, you know, head of CIA and Defense Department. There was a moment in 95, I think. When Kurt Schmoke, the, the mayor of Baltimore, a Democrat, um, who had been my key ally in drug legalization stuff, um, they were looking for help in fundraising. So I persuaded George Schultz, you know, who's identified more on the left, although he wasn't so far, he wasn't that identified on the left back then, but, um, and, and George Schultz to co-sign, George Schultz and George Soros co-sign a fundraising letter for Kurt Schmoke. Right. I remember calling Schultz. He was at his wife's deathbed and he took my call. He said, I'll do it. I'll be proud to do it to help smoke it, you know. And then among the people we sent it to, one was a guy, in, you know, who responded with a little contribution named Frank Carlucci, 
you know, and I went to see Frank Carlucci and he said, hey, well, you'll never know this, but I was a big supporter of methadone maintenance when I was working in the, in the Nixon administration. And I was supportive, you know, and so it was it was those types of contacts that that, you know, came together and meeting people personally, winning them over them, having confidence in the in the organization. But it did mean that marijuana, the, the success of marijuana reform um, until quite recently was very much tied to the broader movement to end the drug war. Now it's become more and more separated. But Jeff, even now, when I go out to conferences, when people ask me to speak at a psychedelic conference, I'm typically talking about, you know, what is the relationship between the psychedelic renaissance and the broader drug policy reform movement and yeah. including marijuana as part of that discussion? Yeah, as it should be in. Um, really fascinating journey that you've been on. And um, I'm curious to just learn more about the origins of DPA. And then you were at the, you founded the Lynn Smith Center. Is that correct? In 1994? Yeah. I mean, basically what happened was I was, you know, assistant professor at Princeton. At the end of my first year, the, the drug war was going absolutely crazy. You know, this question I would use like McCarthyism on steroids. And I published an article in Foreign Policy magazine and uh, and then a few others. And then I created a little intellectual working group at Princeton that included people like Andrew Weil and Sasha Shulgin and um, just a lot of very prominent people from across, you know, academics and such. And um, so I w and I was very involved with the Drug Policy Foundation, which I'd mentioned was the leading kind of the, the, or the loyal, they call themselves the loyal opposition to the war on drugs. And so I was very active as an academic, as a public speaker. I was definitely the leading public speaker in the world, the most requested, the highest paid, you know, so I was, had a very public um, uh, presence on the whole issue of a dissident on the war on drugs. Um, and then in the summer of 92, I'd been at Princeton for five years. I get a call of the blue inviting me to a lunch with a guy named George Soros, who I kind of heard of, uh, but, you know, he wasn't all that well known back then. And he, you know, what had actually been the number one philanthropist um, responsible for, I mean, playing a role in bringing down Soviet dictatorship and socialist dictatorship in Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, this was the guy who was paying for, you know, scholarships for dissidents and a, a laptop for every dissident in Hungary and a Xerox machine, you know, in every, you know, uh, library and, you know, played a huge role. Probably no private individual played a bigger role in bringing about the downfall of, um, of of socialist dictatorship in Central and Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and George Soros. And he had been a big promoter of the idea of the open society, basically a kind of, you know, you can imagine open society sort of speaks for itself. It was the guy, the philosopher in school economics named Karl Popper had, had, had used that term in books about it. And he'd asked himself, well, um, you know, well, I always assumed the U.S. was kind of the model of the open society, but in what respects is it not? And the drug work just kind of hit him between the eyes. I think it hit him between the eyes is, first of all, as a businessman, economist, like the absurdity of, of generating vast black markets by banning a substance that millions or hundreds of millions of people desired. And then a human rights element to George Soros as well, that, you know, when you're using the tactics of undercover operations, mass incarceration, surveillance, informants, all this, I mean, these things just hit him wrong. So we spent two, he invited me to lunch. Oh, and then it was a funny coincidence. That first article I'd written in Foreign Policy magazine in 1988, the one right adjacent to it was a piece on the Black Monday, the stock market semi-crash of 1987 by a guy named George Soros. So it turned out he had actually seen my piece five years earlier. Um, but then when he reached out, I was the most prominent figure. Um, 
the lunch ends with him saying, look, I see uh, we uh, agree on the basic issues. We'll have our little differences. You know, because he had never heard of harm reduction. I was teaching about harm reduction and all this sort of stuff. He goes, but no, listen, I'm a very wealthy man, but I have, I mean, I, I said I'm a very busy man, but I have substantial resources. So let's assume I want to empower you to accomplish our common objectives. So I kind of laughed, went back home, wrote him a proposal, you know, said start a grants program that I can oversee, support this drug policy foundation, which I'm on the board of, and help fund an interdisciplinary center on the study of drugs and drug policy at a university, which I'll run. And, you know, he got cold feet for a bit. Then this, then he became famous. He broke the British bank and made a billion dollars in a week. And all of a sudden he was a, a name that millions of people knew. Um, and so a year later, 93, we shook hands on the deal. 94. I left Princeton to start it up. And then George had asked me midway through, instead of doing a university, I want to create my own foundation and I want you to be the first project there in the U.S. programs. So we started it up on and I decided to name it after this, you know, uh, sociologist, Alfred Linda Smith. And it was an activist think tank. Um within Soros's foundation for the first six years till we spun it out and created the Drug Policy Alliance. And then related to that. Um, I had not even imagined how I would start to get political, but a year after I started Linda Smith Center, maybe a little sooner than that, people were talking about doing a medical marijuana ballot initiative in California. Uh, you know, there was uh, Dennis Perone, who had been an AIDS activist in San Francisco. There was Dale Geringer, who had been the leader of California Normal for quite some time and still is today. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 uh, and then meanwhile, the ACLU had done some polling that Peter Lewis, the guy who eventually backed Marijuana Policy Project, had backed the ACLU on to look at marijuana legalization, the medical issue. And and so I landed up organizing a meeting with a friend of mine, Chuck Bliss in Santa Barbara, bringing together in March of 95, bringing together key activists, key donors, other key figures and Ram Dass, um, you know, a kind of spiritual figure. Yeah. Um, and and eventually one thing led to another. And apart from my work with the, you know, with Linda Smith Center, I was able to bring together uh, George Soros, Peter Lewis, who I mentioned before, the head of progressive insurance who backed the Marijuana Policy Project for so many years. Um, John, John Sperling, head of University of Phoenix. And uh, then at least in 96, George Zimmer, the guy who founded the Men's Warehouse, which was at the time. The, the, the biggest men's retail clothing store in the history of the country. And to create that partnership um, that enabled us to take, uh, you know, uh, Prop 215, the medical marijuana initiative, which had been drafted by the activists, but which had no chance of getting anywhere. But I was able to raise the millions of dollars and hire a professional campaign manager, Bill Zimmerman, and turn this kind of uh, wet dream into a very serious political victory. You know, what I would describe as the first time that the nascent drug policy reform movement showed that we could play ball in the big leagues of American politics. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly a turning point in American drug policy and something we can look look back on and, and see now with the benefit of hindsight. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, when we came, we, we won that. We also won another ballot initiative, which Sperling had led in Arizona to provide treatment instead of incarceration. But that one didn't really get that much attention. And it was sometimes mischaracterized as a medical marijuana initiative as well. Uh, but then, you know, Jeff, the next challenge for us was how do we show this wasn't a fluke? Because we did get 56 percent of the vote which was more than Bill Clinton got in, uh, you know, in California in his reelection campaign. So we did very, very well. 
But we had, you know, the opponents, you know, all saying these guys just, you know, Soros, Nadelman, they just want to legalize all drugs, give drugs to kids. And so really, um, in fact, on Christmas, I think right, right around Christmas of 96, the drugs are Donna Shalala, head of Health and Human Services, Alan Leshner, the head of National Drug Abuse. They all stood up at a press conference and said, we're going to go after any doctor or patient who discusses the medical value of marijuana. So really, we, you know, three things happened then. One was my new head of legal affairs, Dan Abramson, connected with an attorney friend of his named Graham Boyd, who was subsequently played a big role in the drug policy reform movement. And they came up with the idea of suing the federal government for violating the First Amendment rights of doctors and patients. And we fought a seven-year battle in federal court on that thing. We ultimately won that battle. Uh, in fact, I, my organization received a check for a third of a million dollars from the drug czar's office, re reimbursing us for attorney's fees, probably the sweetest contribution I ever got in, in all my years of fundraising. So and if we had not won that case, we would not be where we are today by any means. I mean, if the courts had upheld that said that that was not the doctors and patients could be punished for discussing medical marijuana, that would have seriously derailed us. The second thing we did, and this goes to an issue we're talking about, also when Soros and I met a month or two after the election, and he says, what's our next move? I mean, everybody's called, you know, saying all these terrible things about us. And, and I said, George, here's your next move. I want you to make a very public $1 million commitment to support needle exchange programs in the United States. He goes, why is that? I said, well, you're already doing a little bit, first of all. It needs, it's, it's an urgent need. People are dying. But it's also a way of sending a message to people that legalizing marijuana for medical purposes, I mean, if they want to believe it's about legalizing marijuana down the road, fine, because for that was one of the reasons for doing it, not the only reason. But if they think we're some kind of right-wing libertarians who want to legalize everything, that's not true. This shows it's about harm reduction, health, about helping people. And so that was the second thing we did. The third thing we did was with Bill Zimmerman, we looked around the country. So half the states have about have the option of changing a law, not just through the legislature, but through a ballot initiative. We look and we knocked off California. There were 24 left. Right. We knew that some, we wanted to get as many initiatives as possible. That meant that the big states, Florida, Michigan, um, stuff like that. We couldn't afford to do those, Ohio. So, and then we had to look at which states was support for legalizing medical marijuana, at least 55% or hopefully up to 60%. And so we ident identified Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, and Maine, those six as states where we had a majority of support, you know, some, some, you know, but with a margin for legalizing medical marijuana where they were small enough that we could afford to do it. Right. Um, and then I then the challenge was for me to raise the money. And in the most the biggest fundraising coup of my life in the space of 24 hours, I persuaded George Soros, Peter Lewis and John Sperling to commit between eight and nine million dollars over the next 18 months um, to basically get this through, as well as a few initiatives in other areas. And then come 1998, you know, we basically well, between 98 and 2000, we won all six. You know, there were some quirks along the way, you know, you know, in Maine, it snowed a lot. So we didn't get all the signatures. We had to put it off to 99. In Nevada, the Constitution required that you win it twice in a row. In Colorado, we made it onto the ballot. Then the Secretary of State of Colorado, you know, invalidated us. So people went to the ballot. They voted on it. We had exit polls showing we won, but the vote didn't count. Then we sued the Secretary of State of Colorado. She died. We got back on the ballot, and then we won it again in 2000. But that was a way in which we showed that it was no fluke. And also sets a model 
If you fast forward to legalizing marijuana in, in Colorado and Washington in 2012, it's why it was so important that we went back, you know, uh, MPP and Rob going back in Alaska, us going back in Oregon, uh, then another local one in D.C. that we went back and showed that what happened in 2012 was no fluke, that we could do this and even do it in a non-election year. Yeah, wow. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible to just see how much changed in that time. You know, you talked about sort of that late nineties push. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. And then can you talk about, you know, when you switched over to Drug Policy Alliance in 2000 and if that was just, you know, if that was more of a name change or a full sort of strategy change? No, it wasn't. I mean, basically, at that point, the Drug Policy Foundation had in the late 90s really had fallen on hard times. They'd had all sorts of internists in conflict in their staff. Virtually all of their policy staff had left. They'd been through various temporary heads. Um, so it was almost defunct, but it was still operating as a convener of the conferences. It still had a grants program. Um, it still was giving out awards, which I thought were very important to recognize leadership. Um, and so I had s stepped off the board of Drug Policy Foundation. Foundation, but Ira Glasser, who was chairing it, and another key board member, David Lewis, Professor Brown, they came to me and asked if I'd consider a merger um, because Soros and his right-hand guy had asked me to now take Linda Smith Center out of Open Society Institute and make it independent. So I agreed. Um, but essentially, there was no real change. I mean, it, essentially, we Linda Smith Center absorbed Drug Policy Foundation to become the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, so and remember also that even before that, legally speaking, um, when I was doing all that work on ballot initiatives for legal reasons, a nonprofit foundation like the Open Society Institute, Open Society Foundation could not legally be involved in a ballot initiative. So I, my, my role had to be much more behind the scenes in the late 90s because it both look, would have looked inappropriate for a guy sitting in office in New York to be, you know, the guy orchestrating the ballot initiatives around the country. And it was also because I didn't really have a, uh, um, I, you know, we had to arrange the legal contracts so that I could work on the initiatives, but the Linda Smith Center could not be publicly identified with the initiatives. So I, you know, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the law and what you can and cannot do when you're running foundations. And I learned to become both, you know, uh, innovative at the same time as, as obeying the law about how to you know, keep this movement moving forward. So there was no real major change of strategy. I mean, in a way, you know, the, the broad strategy from really the mid 90s was we were going to throw focus on three winnable issues, medical marijuana, uh, legalizing access to sterile syringes in pharmacies and uh, and needle exchange programs to reduce the spread of AIDS. And lastly, uh, fighting the stigma against methadone maintenance treatment for heroin addiction and making it more accessible and more available. So those were three moderate issues where we could win lots of allies who did not agree on broader legalization. And it's the same time to pound the drum wherever we can for legalizing marijuana more broadly and for rolling back the drug war more broadly. You know, I think when, when, the Drug Policy Foundation, its board would always have this endless fight between the ones who wanted to legalize all drugs and the ones who wanted a more harm reduction public health approach. And what I was able to do when I merged the organizations was to come up with a formulation 
that allowed everybody to feel like they were part of the same thing. That ultimately that this was about reducing the role of the criminal justice system in drug policy as much as possible while still protecting public health. And that was the kind of consensus definition that it has remained more or less to this day. Yeah, that's, I really like the way that you put that. I mean, the reality is that making certain substances legal does help with that uh, tremendously, obviously. Um, and it was, it sounds like a good way to sort of unite the group. Well, it was in the sense that, um, you know, we knew that if you just took the kind of the the Milton Friedman vision of legalizing all drugs, except maybe for sale to kids, um, that that would gut prohibition, right? That would gut the black markets, take them away from organized crime. It would reduce the problems of adulterated drugs. It would reduce the problems. I mean, that would have a huge, huge benefit in terms of, um, of, of really reducing so many of the harms of the drug war and of prohibitionist policies. But the fear was that if you let it all be open market like that, um, that essentially you might invite very significant increases of not just drug use, but of drug misuse. That was the fear. And that's one reason I never identified fully as a, you know, a total legalize all drugs guy. I always felt marijuana, sure, uh, but it, really the devil's going to be in the details. And I never found myself advocating for selling crack cocaine you know, over the counter. Um, yeah. I would go through the hypothetical and I say, here's why we need to think about that. And here's why we have to yeah. ask ourselves, what do we fear if we actually did that? But at the same time, I wasn't advocating for that. And I didn't really I didn't believe that was going to be the optimal solution. So that idea about, um, you know, how to focus. I, mean, I should also say, as I built out the organization and opened up offices in New Mexico and Colorado and New Jersey, uh, plus a, a state based office in New York, California. Um, and as we supported efforts in other states with lobbyists and activist groups, you know, a lot of them. They wanted to run away from the more extreme, you know, I mean, I say extreme, but, you know, uh, you know, they for a long time, they didn't want to associate with legalizing marijuana because they're trying to get medical marijuana through. They're trying to get needle exchange through. They're trying to get sentencing reform through. They're trying to get overdose prevention through. And they're saying, Ethan, if if we invite you into the state and you give a speech about having to legalize marijuana, that's going to scare away some of the legislators. I'm trying to get to ally with us on these other more moderate issues. So it was a really a matter of balancing these things. Um, over time, um, you know, while remaining, you know, consistent on the rhetoric, but thinking about the where's and when's and how's and, and, which, and how you articulated this stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a tightrope that you had to walk. And it seems that you did so successfully. You know, I, I saw that Rolling Stone has called you the point man for drug policy reform efforts and the real drugs are. And, um, you know, what, now looking back at where drug policy has come in your time, you know, how does that feel, you know, to do, do you get some reward out of what's been accomplished in your time at sort of the helm? I, I mean, you look, you know, one of the things I knew early on, I remember I went to see Ron Das actually before I even started Luna Smith Center back around 93. And and he said two things to me that I remember. One was he said, you need to learn to love William Bennett. Now, a lot of your listeners won't remember William Bennett was, but he was the nation's first drug czar beginning in the Bush administration in 1989. And he was somebody who was really a broader uh, proselytizer for a very a reactionary political agenda in America. And as drug czar, he was absolutely atrocious. I mean, supporting death penalty and demonization, all this sort of stuff. And when Ramstad said to me, you need to learn to love William Bennett, I kind of grimaced and kind of half laughed, but I knew what he meant. I think, which was that we don't win what we're, is we're fighting for unless we can 
embrace and share and empathize with the parts of the American public and psyche that that William Bennett's trying to tap into. But the second thing he said was that you need to let go of your attachment to the things you're fighting for. And what I took that to mean was that basically I'm involved in this because it's the right thing to do. It's it's a good cause. And even if I come to the end of my years of advocacy, um, not having accomplished anything or having gone back, it still will have been a struggle worth fighting for because I was fighting for justice and for freedom and for compassion and for science-based policy, right? Now, that said, I'm competitive and I didn't want to lose and I wanted to have an impact. And the fact of the matter is, you know, when I got going in the in the 80s, you know, roughly 50% of Americans supported legalizing marijuana for medicine, maybe a little less, in fact, at that time. And only about 25% supported it for broader adult use legalization. Now, it's like 70% of the American public supports legalizing marijuana and 90% supports it for medical, right? And when I got started, although there'd been a rash of these kind of mini medical marijuana laws that had passed in the late 70s, early 80s, but never been really implemented. And they were sort of about research programs. You know, there was no legal medical marijuana except for a very small federal program that still existed with a couple dozen people, you know, getting their canisters of weed each month from the, from the federal government. But to go from no states being legal for anything to having 24 states with more than half the population now be legalized adult use marijuana and something like 38 or 39 states have legalized medical marijuana. Um, that is a monumental accomplishment. And the fact that I, you know, that, that that's a big part of what I committed my life to. And that I'm, you know, given credit for that by people in the know is a huge source. I mean, I, 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 I love the feedback I get on that and I get it, you know, very frequently. Now, the second third of our work was ending the role of the drug war in mass incarceration. And in that respect, we had quite substantial success. I mean, in the sense that, you know, back when I got going, 50% of the people getting locked up on drug charges in New York, New Jersey were, were you know, um, I, I mean, locked up in prison were on a drug charge. You know, uh, uh, the majority, two thirds of those in federal prison, right? So being able to substantially, even as the prison population peaked some years ago and then headed down until I think it took a bump up in the last year or two. But the percentage of that being locked up on drug charges, not just, I mean, marijuana is more about rest and obviously there are incarcerations, but more with the other drugs, bringing those numbers substantially down um, and passing the laws to reform or abolish mandatory minimums at the federal and state level, um, finding alternatives to incarceration. Um, you know, that also, I mean, that was the one that did more that accomplished more than a marijuana reform in terms of actually advancing freedom in terms of people not losing their freedom, going into a cage, you know, run by the state. So the fact that tens or hundreds of thousands of people um, have spent either no time behind bars or less time behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses is something I take a huge amount of pride in as well. But it's also one where I, you know, whereas I'm identified now in the marijuana one, the success, it's a more, that one's a little different. And then the last sort of our issue, which was around treating drug use and, and uh, addiction as a health issue, not a criminal issue. You know, we had a lot of success in moving forward on legalizing needle exchange programs and access to syringes, then in getting naloxone, the opioid antidote out there and, you know, otherwise revamping laws. But there's still a long way to go. And none of us, although although overdose rates started growing already in the early 2000s, none of us anticipated 
what would happen with fentanyl and these absolutely, you know, horrendous hundred thousand people a year dying last years on that sort of stuff. So I do feel very proud of the work, you know, that I accomplished and, you know, you know, I, with my colleagues and the different hats, you know, from writer and speaker to organizer, to movement builder, to grant maker, to, you know, fundraiser, what have you. Um, but right from the get go, I would oftentimes say, I feel like I'm at the first generation of what's going to be a three generation movement, at least. Right. And we sometimes know that, in fact, these battles are never totally won in some. I mean, they can't. Yeah. I guess I guess alcohol prohibition got repealed and only it is repealed. I can't see that going around the other way. But you look on civil rights, you look on gay rights. Some of these things you, you think you've won and you need to just keep coming back and yeah. having to win them or, or defend them again and again. So when I was decided six years ago, six and a half years ago, well, actually decided before that, you know, I'd be at around 20, late 15 to early 2016 to step down. But when I finally did it in 2017, you know, I really saw myself as handing off the baton to this second generation um, to carry it forward. Yeah. And why was 2017 the right time to do that? Well, I'll tell you, you know, normally, I mean, I'll tell you, Jeff, I, I, you know, I just worked my ass off like nonstop from the time I was my 20s into my 50s. I never took more than two weeks vacation and I did because I didn't really feel like I needed it. And like, you know, sometimes like in the summer, I'd go through a week or two, like in July, um, like, am I getting tired? Do I want to think about doing something else? And, and then that would lift and I would just be, you know, like this boundless amount of energy to just keep going and traveling the world and organizing and building, you know, Drug Policy Alliance was just me or you know, was one person. By the time I finished, you know, it was, you know, 80 people and a budget of, you know, 17, 18 million dollars, not, not in addition to all the other funding for initiatives and all that. So I was, I was just going, but then what happened? 2014 was a great year. We won the Oregon Initiative, um, you know, uh, MPP led in Alaska. We won, uh, you know, we, uh, we combined with David Bronner and his folks in Washington, D.C., kind of quasi-legalization thing. Um, I gave a big TED Talk in 2014. Um, that was, a, you know, a big hit. And I was really riding high. And then in early 2015, I kind of had a crash that caught me by surprise. And, like, I started, like, having that feeling I normally get in the summer, like, like you know, like, do I want to keep doing this? And I always thought I would stop sometime between the age of 60 and 80, you know? And, 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 uh, and so then I, you know, took a little break and then it came back again over the summer and then it came back again in the fall. This is in 2015, you know, there were a couple of setbacks here and there. And, and, and then I, took a break in early 2016. I walked to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. That was a, that was a trip. You know, we tried to clear my head and think about things, came back. And, and then by the time it got to be the spring, summer, I had just shared, I've been talking to my board chair, Ira Glasser, who had run the ACLU for a few decades. I was talking to both a, a dear friend, Chuck Blitz, the one who organized those meetings back in 95, and to a, uh, another uh, a consultant who I, I really trusted. And, and, you know, and as I began to work through the personal stuff, the organizational stuff and the political stuff, everything seemed to be pointing to this is the right time to step aside. You know, part of it was, you know, I've been organizing, you know, uh, board meetings, you know, the, you know, was it two board meetings a year and, you know, and the budgets and this, I was just getting tired of it, you know, um, and, and I was feeling I wanted to be young enough to, if I want to do something else, I could do that. And, and, 
and 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 the, and the other thing also was that you know I knew I wanted to be the first person to think it was time for me to step down. You know, I, I mean, I, I felt a little like a kind of, you know, superstar athlete who's just like the first one to begin to detect that, you know, maybe you're losing this tiny bit on your swing or this or that. And and I wanted to be I wanted to be the first person to, to think it was time for me to step down. Right. And then on the organizational drug policy lines was strong. I built up our financial reserves. So I knew it could go through some bumps after I left uh, my management team. Nine of the 10 people had been with me, I think, for a decade. I had a solid board. I, you know, I had a, you know, I knew I could rely on Ira Glass to soup oversee the transition um so organizationally we were really strong and i felt good about that that the organization was now in a place where although it would take a hit from my leaving you know it could bounce back and then lastly on the political stuff i knew that where we were in the marijuana issue um, if we, you know, assuming we won california because i made it very clear that drug policy alliance was going to lead that and there was a lot of a lot of infighting around that, that whole thing but that if we won california and then the other initiatives that uh, Marijuana Policy Project and Graham Boyd were working on in Massachusetts, Nevada, Arizona, Maine, uh, where DPA was playing a supportive role on funding and drafting, um, that you know that, that that meant that if those things won, it was going to be game over. I mean, there was going to be no question that legalization was inevitable on marijuana. So that was clear. On the criminal justice part, the ending the role of the drug war in mass incarceration, if you think about it, the war on drugs was the cutting edge of mass incarceration, driving mass incarceration in the 80s and the 90s. And then drug policy reform became the cutting edge of drug of criminal just broader criminal justice reform in the aughts and into the, you know, the following decade. But by the time we're getting to 2016 or so, drug policy reform was playing an ever smaller role in the broader criminal justice reform movement. And also I, as an older white man, you know, in terms of a movement where this proportion was affecting poor people of color, you know, that was going to become more and more of an issue for donors and for others and this sort of thing. So there was that element as well um, that I needed to be conscious of. Um, so so I could see criminal justice reform that was going to keep moving forward. But my role, the role I had played in that in the 80s and the 90s and into the aughts was no longer my role was was going to be you know, I was not going to be in demand. And then harm reduction, that was spreading. You know, city agencies, state agencies were embracing harm reduction. You know, we still, I was disappointed that we never succeeded in getting safe injection sites or heroin maintenance programs going in the U.S. But I knew that that would be coming at some point. So all of those things just came. And I'd also, I'd saved enough money. So, you know, that I didn't need to take a job I didn't want. I mean, I was self-sufficient in that regard. And and then my dad had died at the age of 58. And you know, somehow as I as I lived past the, the age at which he had died, you know, I just began thinking about mortality a bit more and things like that as well. So the whole thing came together. Everybody was shocked as hell. But we lined it up with my former deputy director, Derek Hodel, coming in as an acting director. He's now, in fact, the chair of the organization. And so I when I look back on it, Jeff, I'll tell you, I feel like in retrospect, I think the way the 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 way and the time at which I stepped down from running Drug Policy Alliance, I, I, I think I did it just about, if I pat myself on the back here, you know, uh, you know, I think I did it just about perfectly. I mean, no regrets and very happy and feeling very proud of where Drug Policy Alliance is now under you know, the leadership of Cassandra Federique because she got her start. She came out of college to work for me when she was 22, 23, and she became the executive director, not right after me, but a few years later. 
And, you know, I mean, I'd agree with every single thing she says or does, but overwhelmingly, I think she's provided fantastic leadership um, for the organization um, and for this movement. And there's still some of a lot of the people who used to work with me are still there. And there's a whole new group that seem amazing. So I, I feel very good about that, that whole transition. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. It sounds like you left the organization in great hands. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak with Cassandra a few times and certainly have, have felt positive about those interactions. And um, do you stay engaged at all with the organization at this point or are you ha completely hands off? Oh, only informally, you know, in the sense that Cassandra and I will have dinner occasionally and I remain friends um, with other people there. Once in a while, we'll get a call or else, you know, when I was you know doing the podcast, I would talk to DPA about what's going on in DC or what's going on in New York. In fact, I interviewed when I did my podcast, uh, Psychoactive, after stepping down from Drug Policy Alliance, I, I interviewed one of my former colleagues, Melissa Moore, about the New York marijuana legalization victory. But I do stay active, Jeff, in other causes. And I mean, there are other issues. Um, but I, let me ask, let me just flip the tables here for a second, ask you a question, put you a bit on the spot, which was a few months ago, I'm, I'm, I'm biking around the city. I remember I was on Roosevelt Island and, you know, biking around and, and I get a phone call from Rick Steves and Rick Steves is the famous travel writer um, uh, uh, who's also the chairman of the board of normal. And I, I've known him for a long time and I, I like him a lot and have a high, and, and he's focused on marijuana and normal, but he's had periodically branched out into broader harm reduction stuff. And he says, Ethan, we're thinking, have we can have a conversation about MPP and, and normal on, um, uh, uh, possibly merging. And so we talked for 45 minutes to brainstorm and I was happy to help, however. And while I'm talking to him, I get an email from John Gilmore, who's this libertarian fellow who had used to support Drug Policy Alliance, who's on the board of Marijuana Positive. I say, Ethan, we're thinking about merging. Can I put you in touch with some people? We might want to, you know, you know, pick your brain in part because you had done the merger of Linda Smith and Drug Policy Foundation back in the day, et cetera. And so, you know, I've purely had a few other conversations, but you're what, the vice chair of, of uh, Marijuana Positive. So I'm putting you on the spot here, Jeff, but like, just tell us what is the latest? What can you share? Um, about is it is this maybe going to happen? Is it dead? Is it possible? Um, you know, are, are there in, in issues about it you want to talk openly with me about? You know, in this recording or all too sensitive? So there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for for bringing that up. I mean, I'd say you know it did get out in public when we initially didn't really want it to. You know, it was just I think we came out and said that we were discussing variety of ways to potentially collaborate, you know, including a potential uh, merger of sorts. Um, you know, I don't want to get too deep into it on the recording, but I'll say that, you know, we're still in active discussions with them. And I think that there's, uh, whether it's via combining or whether via its other collaborative initiatives, I think there's a lot of ways that we can work together where, you know, Normal has uh, this great grassroots activist community surrounding it. Uh, MPP is very much focused on trying to change laws and those are, we, we have similar goals and I think that we can sort of play off each other well uh, to success. So, you know, we are in frequent communication. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, if I can help, let me know. I mean, obviously, I should say, you know, among the 50 reasons I stepped down when I did, one was that, you know, virtually all of the money I raised for legalizing marijuana, both for medical purposes and more broadly, came not from the industry, right? I mean, in fact, I don't even think it wasn't until 
Oregon in 2014, where I went to a, did a fundraiser where actually a lot, most of the people were there from like, or, you know, industry and the unions. And even in 2016, you know, my biggest funder by far was Sean Parker, who was no real, you know, and, and the other ones I raised were, you know, if they had an interest in the industry it was mine or just a small thing and not their driving thing. But Rob Campion, Marijuana Policy Project was already doing a lot more of that. And he and I, you know, had some difference of opinion. You know, my view was, don't raise money from the industry, you know, talk to the industry um, as, you know, they are among the hundreds of stakeholders you talk to draft the initiative based upon good public policy principles. And then once it's drafted and, you know, set with the state, then you can raise money from whoever. Right. Um, Rob was a lot more, you know, um, uh, transactional about the whole thing. I mean, Rob was more willing to talk to people in the industry, medical medical say, hey, yeah, you want that in? Well, that'll cost you this much money and we can put in a provision, you know, in a way that I don't as a matter of principle, I didn't think was quite right. And I also knew that once we won in 2016, assuming we did, that the major donors, Soros and some of the others, um, they were going to say enough of this already. Um, let the people making money in the industry pay for the next stages of this, irregardless of what the consequences are going to be. And, and I didn't really want to be all that involved in raising money from industry. You know, I wanted to, I liked raising it from people from across the political spectrum who supported this as, as a cause and, and having to turn to them for that. Um, um, I was not, you know, uh, you know, and to some extent, if there was going to be any counterbalance against industry forces, that was going to play out more at the legislative level than at state legislative level than it was going to play out in the ballot initiatives. It's going to be where, you know, for example, minority caucuses and state legislatures can mobilize um, around equity and things like that. So um, that said, I'll tell you, um, given the fact that how little funding is now available from the movement and you know, certainly from a principled position and and given the extent to which people in the industry who might fund it are inevitably or almost inevitably going to be transactional in terms of what they do. Um, it seems to me that, you know, obviously looking at how you most efficiently use very limited resources while maintaining some sense of independence is going to be pivotal. And if there's some way for normal and MPP, you know, to merge, not unlike we did with Drug Policy Foundation and Linda Smith Center back in the day, there could be real benefits to that. I know I've been um, spending more time advising and consulting with Last Prisoner Project which is out there really trying to reduce the number of people behind bars and stuff like that. And, and, and they've evolved last prisoner project from focusing on getting clemencies and things like expungements to actually trying to change state laws. They've adopted more of a DPA ish MPP ish model around changing legislation to impact the greatest number of people. So they're out there as well. They've been six, I think maybe even more successful of late than MPP and normal in terms of raising funding um, because they're focusing on that piece. So, you know, I'm happy to help, however, and I, I wish you a lot of luck trying to figure this one out. I know it's it's never easy to do that. And, you know, Normal's had this very high name recognition, but MPP has been the one that's been much more effective at the state legislative and, and ballot initiative side. So it's a it's a mix. Yeah, exactly. And I, I appreciate that insight and your willingness to help. I'll certainly keep you posted. And, you know, in terms of raising money from the industry, you know, it's something that I think we've had to do, but I think MPP specifically, you know, we haven't allowed it to be transactional. Sure. There's people that donate that will have a, a say in some capacity. Maybe they're on the board or otherwise. Um, but, you know, we we really are trying to just end prohibition of cannabis and however we can. And, um, you know, 
we do our best not to, you know, we don't want limited, overly limited licensure in various states and things like that, but we generally do what we need to, to get incremental change to happen and try to fix it a little bit from there. But, um, I've certainly learned, uh, you know, a tremendous amount in my, I don't know, seven or so years on the board. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the other thing is both organizations have some, you know, very talented staff, um, you know, who collaborated very closely with me and DPA for many years. And I think they've also brought in some good people. So, you know, I mean, the, the need for the organization still exists. I mean, the fact of the matter is still 26 states to go. Um, yeah. There's still the federal to go. And to the extent that either organization is active internationally, there's still, you know, a lot to go there as well. And Absolutely. there's the work of trying to get rid of, you know, all the corollary, corollary harms associated with marijuana prohibition, both in the past and current. So, yeah, you know, really essential. Agreed. You know, plenty of work to do. Yeah. So I would love for those philanthropists to get back involved. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think they're going to jump. I mean, at least the ones I knew, I mean, some of them have passed away. I mean, Phil Harvey, the guy described as the kindest hearted libertarian ever met, you know, Peter Lewis passing, you know, what, almost a decade ago now, uh, George is 93 and open society foundation is still funding, but you know, they're going to focus much more on, on the criminal justice reform piece of things. So uh, you know, you know, Jeff, I should say, I mean, the other thing I've done since I left, apart from keeping a hand on the marijuana area, and since I joined the board, you know, um, of Green Thumb Industries, one of the biggest marijuana companies this spring, and a lot of the companies had sort of approached me when I stepped down from Drug Policy Alliance, and I said it would not be appropriate to shift like that from the nonprofit advocacy that I spent decades of my life on to just going to the money-making side. But when the six years had passed and the head of Green Thumb invited me, uh, Ben Kovler, um, I, I said, yes, and I'm thoroughly enjoying that. And it also means I'm kind of re-engaging in the whole marijuana field a lot more and keeping tabs on what's going on and trying to see if there's some ways in which I can play uh, a constructive role behind the scenes. You know, it's less about my public speaking and more about my networks of contacts. But, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the psychedelic renaissance. I mean, that conference in Denver, your city, I mean, 12 and a half thousand people in June. I mean, you know, you know, literally taking over the entire convention center. I mean, where even the Uber and Lyft drivers were buzzing off the collective psychedelic vibe in the city. I mean, that, that was amazing. So I'm thoroughly enjoying that, both on the personal exploration side as well as on the broader policy and movement side. But then the other two issues that have engaged me, I joined the board of a little organization called the National Pain Advocates Center, I think it's called NPAC, headed by Kate Nicholson. And that's an organization that's very concerned about the way in which the pendulum on prescribing opioids for pain, which sung so far in the over-prescribing direction under the influence of Purdue Pharma and Johnson & Johnson and the other big yeah. pharmaceuticals, has now swung the other way too far, where you now have people who are not being provided with opioid medications who should be given it medically, right? You have people wow. who, are, who have been stable on pain me opioid medications for years or decades being told by their doctors they have to strip them off it, and people are like going to the street or committing suicide or living in severe pain. So, that, you know, we tend to do that in America, this pendulum swing from one extreme to another. So that issue has engaged me quite a bit. And the other one is the issue around tobacco harm reduction. I mean, it reminds me so much of what got me interested in drug policy reform back in the 80s, which was, you know, the more you look at the evidence on drug policy, the more you realize that 
all this all the science and the human rights and the evidence and et cetera points towards a harm reduction decrim direction, but the public, the politicians, the media were all in favor of the drug war. And now I look at the issue around vaping and these other alternatives, non-combustible alternatives to cigarettes. And the more deeply you look at the evidence, the more you realize that the government should be doing everything possible to incentivize and push both consumers and the companies themselves to shift away from cigarettes toward non-combustible forms of nicotine, e-cigarettes, these pouches, um, heat not burn devices, because the vast majority of the harm associated with tobacco comes from smoking it, from the burnt particle matter. And nicotine, although it can be quite addictive, doesn't do all that much harm to the human body, right? And so that issue has become something of a passion of mine, where I'm also trying to play various roles behind the scenes and speaking with every podcast I do, every speech I give, I talk about it. But it's the same thing. The majority of people, majority of Americans believe that e-cigarettes are as or more dangerous than cigarettes, when in fact they're 5% as dangerous. Majority of doctors believe that to be true. Majority of people believe that nicotine causes cancer, but it doesn't. It's the smoking that causes cancer. So when you have this massive gulf between what the science, the evidence, the health, the human rights says, and what the public, the politicians, and the media say, that's the thing that gets me excited because that's about you know, trying to move the broader politics and the public perception in line with where the science and the human rights should be, which is where we were monumentally successful on marijuana reform and which where we were significantly but not sufficiently um, successful on, uh, on, on, on sentencing reform and on harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah, well, those are fascinating topics. I hope you continue to work on those and that we can discuss them at some point. Uh, but I'm also curious to learn about how you ended up having a podcast. Uh, it was called Psychoactive. Um, and you know, what was that experience like? Well, I'll tell you, when I, when I, people were asking me as I was leaving Drug Policy Alliance back in 2017, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I think I might want to do a podcast. But the right opportunity didn't really pop up back then. And, uh, and I didn't think, I think I just so much wanted to take a break. And I even wanted to just not talk about drugs for a while, like just like stop hearing this stuff coming out of my mouth. I was getting bored of hearing myself. I mean, it used to be passion, you know, just endless passion for this, but it would fade it. But then what happened is um, as the pandemic was settling in, I got an email from um, the movie director, Darren Aronofsky. Um, you, people may know him because he did, I think, The Whale and he did um, a lot, you know, uh, uh, Requiem of a Dream, uh, Noah, The Wrestler, a lot of famous movies. And, and a lot of times his actors win Academy Awards as well for best acting. Um, and I'd met him 20 years earlier. We'd been introduced because the same guy had taken us each on our first ayahuasca trips and had us meet back then. So Darren had stayed involved and occasionally would show up at a Drug Policy Alliance event. Um, but then he reached out. He said, hey, how about, he goes, um, you know, I, I, I started a production company. I'm thinking about doing a podcast. How about doing a podcast on psychedelics? And I said, actually, I want to do one on all drugs. He said, okay. So he had created, he was about to sign a deal with iHeart, the huge, plat, you know, the biggest platform for podcasts in the world. And so basically we proceeded and I had a contract with Darren's production company. He had a contract with iHeart. And so I had a very sweet setup. And, you know, I had a halftime producer helping me out and I hearted its people and, you know, they did a wonderful launch party and it was, I loved it. I'm going to tell you, Jeff, I did 80 episodes in 80 weeks. 
It was a fair bit of work, um, everything from very contemporary subjects, interviewing people like Senator, you know, Co- Senator Schumer from New York or Congresswoman Mace from South Carolina to historians, to people around the world, you, the whole spectrum of drug su- subjects. And so it was really developing, uh, you know, quite a uh, dedicated, loyal following. Um, so I probably had, I don't know, around 10 to 15,000 listener listens per episode, you know, so I was getting okay, but it was unfortunately not on a trajectory to make iHeart real money. Also, I think because it's so difficult to, um, uh, sell ads for a podcast that involves illicit drugs. And so iHeart, you know, basically said, they said, look, we love it. We love the feedback. We love everything about it. But the difficulty of selling, of raising ad revenue around this um, means we got to pull. So I'm thinking about Sad. going back and doing it again on a kind of more, you know, like you're doing your thing, you know, maybe use uh, yeah. or Substack or Patreon or YouTube or something. Um, yeah, this year I decided to take it easy. Got involved with joining the board of Green Thumb, you know, learning about the for-profit side of the world for the first time in my life. Uh, but I, I'm hoping I'll be back with the podcast at some point. Because I really like doing it. And and the feedback I get when I go to the Drug Policy Alliance conference, when I go to uh, psychedelics events, hearing that is, is really you know heartwarming. Yeah, no, and I, I agree when I, I'm around people that have listened to my show, it's definitely rewarding to hear that it's affecting someone in some way. Um, and you, you got to speak with some, some really incredible people. And you know, I think the podcast industry is tough as it is. Obviously, you add the drug aspect to it, it could make it even harder. Um, and there was also sort of this peak in the podcast industry where Spotify's, et cetera, were spending tons of money on it. And it's been hard to make it economical, similar to, to streaming video um, and, and things like that, the way that that's been difficult to, to actually create a good economic structure around. But, um, you know, I hope we continue to find ways to make it sustainable to do, you know, this type of work. And for myself, certainly a goal of mine is to make my podcast self-sustaining. You know, it's not there yet. Um, but I am, uh, working hard to get it there and certainly understand and hope that you do get back into it. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I, you know, I enjoy being on others. I've enjoyed being on yours, Jeppo, this time and the last time as well. Um, so, you know, it's a great way of getting the word out and, you know, it, it, it oftentimes it may not be, well, I shouldn't say that, you know, when I always thought, you know, the work was not just about converting people. It was also about deepening the level of knowledge and understanding of people whose sympathies are already with you, but who need to be, you know, and on the drug issue, people might be totally with me on marijuana psychedelics, but I was trying to open them up and thinking about other drugs as well. You know, people might be, you know, interested in psychedelics, but if I could have a conversation about that that nobody else was having, or taking on the issue around pain management, or taking the issue, or taking up the issue around tobacco and nicotine, or pulling out drugs like kava or kratom or cot, which are very rarely the subject of podcasts. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy doing that stuff. I, you know, I've always been you know, history. I mean, I, when, when I was eight, I decided I wanted to be a history professor when I grew up. And, and, and I more or less did that. I became a professor of politics, but with a very historical orientation. And so doing, you know, I'll read a book about drug history and I'll have the, you know, author of that book on. Um, so it's, uh, I, I like bringing the more obscure stuff to the attention of, of a broader audience as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to you creating more content and um, I'm going to kind of skip us to my last question or my last main question that I ask every guest. Um, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be and how do you think that change would reverberate? 
Oh, if I, I mean, let, let me go, you know, vision, visionary here. If I could snap my fingers and, and there would be one thing that, that I could do, I think it would be to sort of click something in the human consciousness that opened people up much more substantially to understanding things with nuance and science and compassion and reason. Because if there was something that could happen in the evolution of human consciousness in a rapid way, that would unleash the solutions for, I mean, you know, so much of what human society is suffering from now are, you know, what they call in uh, football, soccer, own goals, you know, I mean, just shooting ourselves, what we're doing in America now with the support for authoritarianism, with our slowness in dealing with the issues around, um, around climate change, you know, with all the ways in which we're getting in our own way and which in short-sighted, not just narrow-minded self-interest, because so much of it is even not in self-interest. It's just be, you know, wanting simplistic stuff. And then when I look at the thing that's been so much on your and my minds, you look in, in the Middle East, um, you know, I've listened, I thought Ezra Klein's had a wonderful series of interviews on his podcast. And the most recent one was with an Israeli general. I think his name is Nimrod or something like that. But, you know, he's talking about, you know, there's an obvious solution. I mean, ultimately, it has to come down to some form of separation. You know, the one the people who talk about one state, whether it's the radical Israeli right or the radical Palestinian left or the know nothing standing up in demonstrations around the country now, um, you know, no, you know, like understanding reasonably what needs to be done, how we learn to get past, you know, the stupid shit or the deep stuff or the hurt or the the anger, this desire for vengeance, um, the greed, all of that. If we could somehow put something in the water that changed human consciousness in that way without reducing our great passion for life and experimentation and new stuff, I mean, that would be a, a true miracle. You know, and I if, agree. I, I, mean, and if just... I deep down believed in God, I say, God, you owe us, man. You owe us. You yeah. know, it's like, uh, let the, let, let this miracle happen. Yeah. I mean, I agree. That would certainly be remarkable for our world in so many ways and unleash a lot of potential. And, you know, it brought my brain to AI. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that are doomers on what AI is going to lead to. There's people on the rosy side. And when I hear about sort of, uh, changing consciousness. You know, I feel that on the, the positive side, a lot of people think that AI can help to, to augment human consciousness and human skill set. So I'm curious if you have a perspective on that and if you think, you know, maybe that can move us in, in this direction. I mean, uh, you know, when, when, when the internet emerged in the 90s and became popular um, in the mid-90s and then it was taking off, um, there was all this sense of optimism that it was going to make huge swaths of knowledge available all around the world to everybody. You know, gonna, this is going to be this great thing and it was going to be enlightening. And yet now we've seen that for all the wonderful things it's created, its ability to be manipulated, the ways in which people increasingly channel what they want to hear to themselves and rather than getting enlightened, become actually more reinforced in their own bigotries and other things than we ever believed. So we've seen... You know, now it seems to me the thing with AI is like the internet on steroids. 
it means that the capacity for good is going to be monumental. I mean, you know, AI could help us not just deal with major medical breakthroughs. It could even help us deal with climate change breakthroughs that would enable us to really. So, I mean, there, it's, the potential is just extraordinary. Right. On the other hand, you know, in the hands of people, you know, whether you're talking about authoritarian governments, whether you're talking about terrorists, whether you're talking about people just looking for greed or whether you're talking about people who just want to be anarchistic in what they're doing, um, the potential for monumental, you know, destruction, if not even destroying humanity, um, that's there as well. And so I think it's that full spectrum. And, you know, the question, you know, when people talk, you know, is there any way for us to keep building out the guardrails more rapidly than we're building out the actual creative element, you know, the, the do? Um, talked to a fellow not long ago who's got an investment fund, and one of his things he's trying to focus on investing in is the guardrails around AI. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me, unless there's some kind of miraculous thing that happens in human consciousness, uh, that I really, I, I, I'm, you know, look, I'm also an older guy now who's got a lot of fears about, you know, every, every generation of people that hit their 60s, they worry about what's the world coming to, you know? So the people who are 60, 30 years ago, 50 years, 100 years ago, 10 years ago, we're always out of this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, anytime the world's changing, I mean, obviously there were long centuries where the world wasn't changing very much, but even then you might've had a doom yeah. and gloom perspective. But now with the pace of change is just accelerating, accelerating. And yet our structures for dealing with the risks associated with it um, are just not keeping up. Um, uh, and where capitalism is on the one hand playing, you know, playing this pivotal role in the creation and expansion of all these amazing things, yet on the one hand contains the seeds of its own, not just it capitalism's own destruction, but also of you know, civil, civilization in, in some desirable way. Uh, so I, 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 I don't want to finish this thing on a, on a doomy note, you know, here, I mean, you and I are talking and I, and if all goes well, I should be a, I should become a grandfather in the next week or so. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be watching, you know, a new generation emerging and, um, wishing all the best and for a, a much better world and praying and hoping and doing what I can for that. And, you know, admiring, you know, all the young people like my daughter who are choosing to have children and to keep believing in the future, because um, I think we have no choice as human beings but to do so. I, I always get a little bummed when I hear young people say, oh, look at the world. I can't do this. But I remember people saying the same thing 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Right now, they may have more reason to say it. But still, you know, it's that notion of keep believing and, and, and hoping and 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 enlightening ourselves and then trying to figure out what can we do to help enlighten others yeah well yeah thank you for taking that back to a positive note to finish us off here you know really appreciate your time appreciate you joining me um and all of the tremendous work that you've done over the years in drug policy reform and otherwise and certainly has been an inspiration for my own work over the years and um you know look forward to continuing our conversation um and you know going forward what's the best way for people listening to keep an eye on you and to support your work well, I mean, first of all, if you haven't listened to the podcast, I mean, those episodes remain up and will remain up for the foreseeable future on all on every single major platform from Apple to Spotify to you name it. So please listen to the podcast and enjoy it. And then if you really want to get in touch with me, you can email me at ethan at net. Can't promise I'll respond. 
Um, but I might. And if you sometimes I, the way I respond to messages, uh, written messages, I may leave a voicemail on WhatsApp. So if you send me a message and you think you want to respond, send your uh, your phone, your your mobile number and let me know if you're on WhatsApp or signal and I'll, and I'll do it that way. OK. Yeah, sounds great. Well, uh, thanks again so much. Uh, wishing you all the best moving forward and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, Jeffrey. And listen, man, thank you very much for doing what you're doing, both with Marijuana Policy Project and, and your work on this podcast and all else. It's, it's really good to share this time with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.